Welcome to London Located at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. On average, it takes eight years to complete a PhD. Although graduate students are groomed to become professors and are taught that a job in academia is the gold standard, the reality is that fewer than one in 10 PhD students will secure a job as a professor. Leonard Casuto and Robert Weisbach examine ways to make graduate education more student-centered, career diverse, and socially engaged to change the system while offering more options for utilizing advanced degrees in their new book, The New PhD, How to Build a Better Graduate Education. It's published by Johns Hopkins University Press and brings Leonard Casuto, a professor of English and American Studies at Fordham University, and Robert Weisbuck, a former professor of English, department chair and dean at the University of Michigan to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, since there are two of you, I'm going to address you individually, but if one of you wants to follow up on the other person's answer, feel free, okay? Great. Robert, has uh, COVID-19 had an impact on most PhD programs? Before the pandemic, how competitive was it to get into a PhD program? It's always very competitive to get into a Ph.D. program. When I was at the University of Michigan, we'd often have as many as uh, 700 or 800 applications for 30 places. But uh, I think that with the COVID, really the effect of the COVID uh, pandemic is that it simply underlines the problem that's been going on for really nearly half a century. The so-called academic job shortage began in 1970. And it's, it's been 50 years now, so it's, it's hardly a new crisis. It's been a continuing fact of being it gets a little better, it gets a little worse. But there simply are not anywhere near the number of jobs for the number of graduates. And so COVID is simply going, it looks to, to us as if, as if COVID, the result of COVID will be simply a greater shortage of professorships because it's hit mm. university budgets very hard. Leonard, is it true that half of graduate students entering Ph.D. programs never finish? Not only is that true, but the attrition rate of 50%, which we ought to look at as a disgrace, is, number one, generally unknown even to people in academia, except those, the minority of us who study, study the, uh, the workplace, and also it used to be even higher. The idea that we have a training program that is willing to discard so many of its hopeful, hopeful entrants is, uh, and, and is ethically flawed, especially since a lot of the attrition that takes place takes place later in graduate programs after students have already committed so much of their, their sweat and their tears. Well, isn't one of the issues affecting completion of PhDs the length of time that they take to complete eight hours, eight years on average? I was gonna say eight hours, that would be okay. Eight years? Time to degree has been, has been a problem along with the, uh, the, the shortage in academic jobs. However, time to degree has always been a historically contingent idea. In the 1960s, when there were a, a lot of professor's jobs out there to be had, and time to degree was actually much faster, four to five years, people were complaining about time to degree then. We need to be able to put things into perspective. We need to look at the assumptions that underlie our practice. And chief among those assumptions is the idea that we're training PhDs to become professors only in the first place. Hmm. That has only been, been true for a very short period of time. There was a period in the post-war, in, uh, after, after World War II, when, there, when the, the academia was expanding and there were more professorships than there were PhDs to fill them. That was a blip. Before that time and after that time, PhDs worked at all different kinds of jobs. We want to bring back that idea, go back to the future, as it were, to uh, bring PhDs into the world because the world needs them. Now, Robert, why does it take so long, and how could the process be streamlined? It shouldn't take so long. It's ridiculous. 
Uh, Are people doing other stuff while they're they're studying for the PhD? Well, very often that is the case. That is, there is a degree of support through teaching assistantships and fellowships and research fellowships. But, for instance, in about the year 2000, Columbia University's English department uh, finally asked its students what they were doing with their lives, and they were shocked to find out that most of their students needed to take a a job in order to support themselves while they were in school. But I think the larger reason, that the two large reasons that time to degree has gotten worse over the last 40 or 50 years, one of them is, uh, as Len suggests, if there aren't jobs out there, why should I leave? I may not be making a fortune as a graduate student, but I may make less once I get my degree. So there's a disincentive, really, to complete the degree in terms of the job shortage within academia, as long as students believe it's the only thing they can do, which is a terrible misapprehension, then they're going to stay in graduate school uh, without any sense of, uh, can't wait to get out, can't wait to become an adult, earn a living, and so on. (laughs) But, But, you know, also, there's been an arms race. When I was in graduate school, I was in graduate school the late 60s, early 70s, I was not expected to publish anything. That is to say that I was expected to write a dissertation that somebody might find interesting and therefore hire me. But now you are expected to publish even while you're in graduate school. It's almost as though you have to get tenure while you're still a graduate (laughs) student. And, of course, that uh, lengthens time to degree. So Louis Menand uh, said several years ago, you know, it takes three years to become a lawyer, it takes four to become a doctor, and it takes six to nine plus to be eligible to teach poetry to college students. <laughs> and, and, and he says, lives are warped because of the length and uncertainty of the doctoral educational process. And, you know, one final thought. Undergraduate education. Sure, sometimes it takes more than four years, but that's our expectation. Doctoral education? What's the expectation? There is none. Hmm. Leonard, you argue that this isn't simply a niche issue for people in PhD programs or who are thinking about pursuing a PhD. Why do you say it's an important issue on a broader scale for education in the United States and in the workplace? We should all care about what happens to PhDs. PhDs, by the numbers, there we don't we don't graduate that many compared to to BAs. But what happens to the Ph.D. ripples throughout the system of education in the United States and elsewhere and from, outset, from the system of education outwards. If, uh, what happens, if they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, with the Ph.D., it's the opposite. What happens to the Ph.D. happens to all education. The, uh, the curriculum that guides Ph.D. education in any discipline is shaping the curriculum for the teaching of that discipline in college, and from there, high school, primary school, and so on. And so uh, it shapes liberal arts curriculum. How would changing the PhD curriculum affect liberal arts curriculum? Well, the PhD is the core, the crown jewel of the liberal arts. It's the it's the most prestigious degree in the liberal arts, but it's more than that. It's it is at the at the center of the, um, the idea of, edu- of liberal arts education. Since the post-Civil War era, when research universities arose in this country, the idea uh, that uh, Ph.D. education was providing the guiding framework for what was happening in any given field is an idea that has, pre- that has um, persisted in the century and a half and more uh, leading up to where we are now. You wrote a previous I, book, The Graduate. Oh, you want to add something, Robert? Please. Yes, if I could just add one thing. It, it's that really, in a way, what we're calling the new Ph.D. is, in a way, the renewal of the Ph.D. That mm-hmm. is to say, when you're asking how a change in the Ph.D. might affect the liberal arts curriculum generally, I think at the, at the base of our thoughts about the Ph.D. is the idea that education is a public good, that it's not only about the individual uh, making a career for herself, but it's also about about the quality of uh, our national intellect, of our national thought, of our democracy. The national forefathers, 
uh, Madison, Franklin, Adams, Jefferson, all, in Madison's words, uh, thought of, uh, quote, liberty and learning, each leaning upon the other for their mutual and surest support. Jefferson said, liberty can never be safe except in the hands of people with a certain degree of instruction. And he said, a nation that wishes to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization expects what never was and never will be. And, you know, I read this morning, as I'm sure you did, uh, the latest survey telling us that a majority of Republicans still believe that the vote was fraudulent. Uh, the much greater number of Republicans who believe that were not college educated. Um, but what we see again and again in an era of misinformation is an inability to be able to distinguish between truth and falsity. And so we see some of Jefferson's warnings very close up to ourselves. All of this has to do with the nature of the Ph.D., finally, and how we value expertise. Now, I was uh, an art major and an art history minor in through grad school. I don't remember ever having a, a Ph.D. as a teacher. Maybe I did in art history, but I don't remember that. Uh, in art school and in, in uh writing programs and the like, isn't it more important for the, the teacher to um, uh, be experienced in that field? Credentials are the guiding light of American higher education because when universities came to the United States after the Civil War, it was also the time that, the, the, that a middle-class identity was establishing itself in the United States. If you survey most Americans today, they will say that they are some version of middle class. Never mind what that may mean, but the idea of having a middle class identity started, it, it arose in the post-Civil War era at the same time that the universities came. And the, uh, the universities uh, latched onto the emergent middle class and, and American higher education got into the business of supplying credentials to um, give the middle class a recognizable badge that could allow for the uh, for for the identity to be consolidated socially. So we're living that the, we're 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 living today the legacy of those developments. The value of credentials, well, they uh, they have an efficiency in art. Art is one of the few disciplines in the university where PhDs are not as common. Hmm. But the no, but it was the fact the, is. It was if I when I had a the the, uh, the most famous artists were the ones everybody wanted to study with, even if they weren't necessarily the best teachers. Uh, well, that's that. There's <laughs> some truth to that in other disciplines as well, but the the importance of credentials is a uh, is a fact of American higher education. We've been exporting it to the rest of the world too, but uh, uh, higher education in the United States is for better or worse. A, uh, a credentialing business. We need to make that credential into something that means something, not simply to outside observers, but also to the students who have these credentials. They need to believe that these credentials uh, confer upon them not only uh, a, uh, a badge, but also a set of skills that they can take out into the world. Now, Leonard, uh, you wrote a previous book, The Graduate School Mess, what caused it and how we can fix it. So you see major issues in graduate education in, in general, not just in the Ph.D. area? Well, we, uh, gra graduate education is guided by the Ph.D. There are master's programs, of course, and the master's degree has its own history. It's a sordid history because oh. Ph.D. education has been ruling the roost pretty much since the 1880s, and uh, doctoral education has lorded it over the master's degree during that time so that if we, if we are to revive the master's degree as a meaningful uh, credential outside of certain specific fields, such as business or engineering, where it's, where it's always been viable, if we're going to revive liberal arts master's degrees, then we have to start with the fact that, the, that Ph.D. education has denigrated them for too long. My guests on Leonard Lopate at Large today are Leonard Casuto and Robert Weisbuck, 
the authors of The New PhD, How to Build a Better Graduation Education, Graduate Education. It's published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and I am Leonard Lopate. Uh, Robert, you served as the president of Drew University from 2005 to 2012. And before that, you served as chair of the English department and dean at the University of Michigan, along with other roles. Based on those experiences, what do you see is happening in graduate education? And has it has your perspective changed as you took on the, those different roles in higher education? Very much so. I, I will confess to you, Leonard, that when I was at the University of Michigan at one point, I had a student who confessed to me, and it really was a, a con courageous confession, that she didn't wish to become a college professor, that she wanted to teach in high school and perhaps become a director of curriculum at some point. And I angrily said to her, we didn't give you your fellowship for you <laughs> to do that. Right, <laughs> you know, shame on me, because uh -huh. now that same student would be my hero, and I would welcome that. And, and you know, it occurs to me when you were speaking earlier about your own education, uh, you didn't take a degree in... Uh, talk radio. You took, no. you took a degree in art and art history, and here you are. And what we're saying to graduate students today is, a closed economy is a bad... Did you disappear? As well as within uh, academia, you've got choices. Uh, as you reflected on stepping down from your role as president at Drew University, you wrote in a letter to the university community that Drew is, quote, poised to become a model of real-world liberal education in all three of its schools. Drew in particular? Not really. It's really a matter of the fact that a lot of undergraduate education, as I expect uh, many listeners know, has become much more involved in experiential learning, in interacting with communities, in getting students and faculty to take their learning outside the academy to deal with urgent social issues, and at the same time, to learn from those people working out there in ways that they could never learn in the classroom and to bring that back into, into classroom learning. So it's, it's learning and teaching at the same time. That kind of trend, which we've seen in undergraduate education toward the experiential, could easily be uh, adapted to graduate education as well. For instance, one semester, rather than taking another teaching assistantship, a student might take an internship at a nonprofit, a for-profit, yeah. or wherever outside of academia to see how their learning could contribute to uh, some other, uh, some endeavor that's not about being a professor. We are seeing some of this right now, and one of, one of the goals of our book is to make these examples of, of good practice accessible to everybody, available to everybody, because a lot of the time the people who are doing these things are so busy doing them that they don't have time to put up a billboard to announce that they're doing them. Now, I'm throwing this out to both of you. How did the two of you come to collaborate on this project, and what did your previous perspectives bring to the project that the other one didn't bring? Well, we started we begin to work with you, Rob? Go ahead. Well, you we, started we actually had a mutual friend who, <laughs> who introduced us to each other, but the truth is we both showed up at a particular conference uh, that was the annual uh, American Historical Association conference, and we, we uh, found each other raising some of the same issues in a question and answer period, and, and from there we, uh, we began to know each other and, and, and well, think Well, we worked together. together on a Mellon Foundation report on, on many of these issues. Hmm. That was the, uh, the, the fir our first collaborative project. And um, we worked on that Mellon report, by the way, Leonard, because uh, the head of the Mellon Foundation at the time, Earl Lewis, uh, came to me and said, Bob, you know, the stuff we were working on in the 1990s on graduate education, I just met with a bunch of graduate deans. They're asking the same questions. They're raising the same problems. They don't seem to know all the, all the different reforms that we attempted. And so he said, could you write a history of those reforms? And uh, Len, in the meantime, was writing a very well-received column for the Chronicle of Higher Education on, on Ph.D. education, and I asked him to partner with me. The, the, uh, there was a graduate education initiative by the Andrew 
W. Mellon Foundation from 1991 to 2000, which involved 54 departments at 10 major universities. What were its goals? Because uh, the uh, the departments change have such different uh, uh, well attract such different uh, students. Uh, after all, uh, writing programs are quite different than science programs, different than economics programs, etc. Well, you refer to a very instructive with... failure. It's, uh -huh. uh, the, we, we talk in our book not only about reforms that worked, as I mentioned a minute ago, but also about reforms that failed to work. And that Mellon Foundation initiative, which was bankrolled to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, over $80 million, was a, um, a, a failure on its own terms. Its own terms, as you, as you asked, the goal was to reduce time to degree. Well... The, uh, and the means of doing so was to give departments money and say, come up with some ideas for, re for reducing time to degree and then come back to us and let us know what happened. Well, there, are, there were problems in the implementation and there were problems in the assessment because the departments did not do what they, were, what they said that they were going to do, most of them. They were mostly humanities departments. And... Uh, the result was a colossal bust that, uh, to their credit, uh, the, some of the investigators wrote up in the form of a book. We cover those failed reforms in our book because we have as much to learn from our failures as from our successes. You mentioned economics a moment ago. Economics has a very successful disciplinary culture. It's one of the few disciplines that honors a variety of outcomes for its students, not just professors' jobs. It does, it's, a, it's a fact that students from all disciplines work not only in academia but elsewhere, uh, but also elsewhere. But in economics, there is a cultural acceptance and a valuing of that, of that diversity of outcomes. Um, one, of the, one of the findings that, that we make in our book is that, is that many past reforms failed for a couple of different reasons. On the one hand, as in the, as in the Mellon case, and they were unusually frank in describing what didn't work, uh, much to their credit. But, but what actually didn't work was there was a sort of call from on high. We want you to, uh, we want you to decrease time to degree. And the faculty never really bought into it. So they took the money and ran, frankly. And I think the net result was a couple of months. Uh, if you looked at all those departments overall and averaged it out, there was a decrease of maybe a month or two. And frankly, uh, my department, which I was leading at the time, the English department at the University of Michigan, was able to decrease time to degree because I believed in it and my colleagues believed in it by about two years. So if you take us away, there was no change whatsoever because the faculty didn't buy into it. On the other hand, some other initiatives uh, had the opposite problem. They said to faculty, tell us what you want to do. Just talk about it, and, and, and let's see where you come up if you become thoughtful about this. Well, if you ask faculty, and I'm one of them, to talk about something, uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to any action. You know the old joke, how many faculty does it take to change a light bulb? That <laughs> light bulb doesn't need changing. And so you had talk without, without any result uh, very often in some of the other initiatives. One of the things we try to provide in the book is a means by which discussion can occur. Goals can be defined carefully. You work back from the goals by reverse engineering and you actually do something. The Preparing Future Faculty Initiative by the Association of American Colleges and Universities and, and the Council of Graduate Schools began in 1993. So we're talking in a, um, what, almost 30 years ago, continues to this day. What was the goal there, uh, and how has uh, the research been conducted? Uh, another very well-intentioned reform that uh, slipped between the cup and the lip. The goal of preparing, preparing future faculty, and we talk about this in more detail in, in our book, was to take graduate students out of their own home universities where they are learning in uh, their necessarily sequestered disciplinary environments and uh, give them some experience at the, at, a, at the kind of university or college that they don't normally see, so a, a teaching-intensive place, perhaps a regional state university. 
and the idea was to um, give these students some time through a, through partnerships with these other institutions so that they could get into the workings of these institutions uh, and uh, and participate in the work that was going on there. And um, it ultimately did not, uh, again, fa- failure to provide systemic oversight uh, led to a, um, a smattering of, diff- of, of, of um, de- desultory outcomes where the graduate students didn't get enough to do. The, um, the home institutions didn't, weren't, weren't very impressed by what they were bringing back, and the program diluted itself over the years and also became increasingly decentralized. So it goes on today. It has, there are programs that, uh, at different uh, universities around the country today that bear the name Preparing Future Faculty, and the name dates back to that original initiative, but it's a long time since anyone ever was, has been minding that store. Only it's one a shame in- because, because that initiative was terribly important. It did establish liaisons uh, among different kinds of educational institutions, and those liaisons are hard to come by. So you did have a research university working typically with a liberal arts college, a community college, a, a branch of a state college. That was great. Uh, the problem with PFF, preparing future faculty, was that it didn't give the graduate students a teaching experience at those institutions. Mm-hmm. It, it only had them following faculty around, which struck many educators, myself included, as not worth the time it would take the student to engage in just attending faculty meetings and and seeing how other faculty live. On the other hand, we think it's an idea that needs to be revived, that that it's very, you know, most most Ph.D. graduates probably attended a uh, highly selective small college or research university as undergraduates, went on to a research university as graduate students, yet those who stay in education, the great majority are going to be working at institutions not at all like the ones where they were students. So the idea that they should be introduced to other kinds of institutions is extremely important, but they ought to be introduced by doing actual work there, not simply by walking around uh, following another faculty member. James Grossman, the executive director of the American Historical Society, says that a key issue is that all parties involved think it's not me. It's the other group's (laughs) responsibility to change, meaning faculty versus students versus administration. There is a fair bit of finger pointing that goes on in the field of graduate school reform. But let's be a little bit more optimistic about this. The The conversation that we're having today, Leonard, is a conversation that we could easily have had uh, 25 years ago, when um, you uh, when 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 we were all a little younger and closer to our own school experiences. The issues were the same, the difficulties were the same, the uh, the academic job market was suffering then too, but no one wanted to have those conversations then because everyone was waiting for um, for happy times to appear again. The uh, and the, that sort of waiting is part of what produced this 50-year so-called crisis. The, but you write that graduate de- you write that graduate deans often don't have the power they need to affect change. Yes, well, it's uh, that is that is certainly true. But uh, just to to finish that thought, if we can be, if we can be happy about anything at the moment, it's that we're having these conversations now, and the conversations that we're having now are much more action-oriented, and the results that we're seeing now are, are more encouraging. You're Let me listening add to-, to that. There's, a, there's been a real change from the moment that we started the Mellon Report, which was about six years ago, six, seven years ago, uh, to the point of, uh, where we were completing this book. Six or seven years ago, we were saying, well, this is what didn't work. Here's what we think ought to happen now. But by the time we were writing the book, we were actually able to include tens and, and actually probably more than a hundred examples of, of, of different institutions, different programs, uh, actually becoming more career diverse, more public facing, more student centered. That's a change. So that, that is the, the positive news that we want to bring to BAI listeners. Um, the, the negative is that it still is the case that graduate deans do not have sufficient authority to serve as the voice of the students to incentivize programs to make 
themselves more student-centered and outcome-oriented. The graduate dean is usually a very, now this is, there are many exceptions, and where you see the exceptions, you see the greatest amount of change. But typically, the graduate dean is someone who is not funded uh, with that kind of uh, simply uh, money to be able to offer carrots, and much less uh, uh, the authority to, to provide sticks where needed. And when, a uni- when, university deans gather, or when university deans gather around the table, the graduate dean is the one who has no money in the budget. <laughs> yeah. Well, talk about no money. I have to take a little break here talk about money. <laughs> uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. When you're 10 years out of Princeton with not a lot to show, your pain will end there's one place you can go where theory isn't dead and hegemony is a household word and everyone you meet wants to unpack each other's terms let's sign okay. up for the GRE Pay those okay before we get back to my conversation with Leonard Casuto and Robert Weisbuck I'd like to take a few minutes to ask you to show your support for the show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is to call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Or go online to give to WBAI.org. Becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And I'm excited to announce that we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show. If if you call 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org right now and sign up to become a sustaining member, we would be happy to send you a free copy of the book that we have been discussing, The New PhD how to Build a Better Graduate Education by my guests, Linda Casuto and Robert Weisbuck. All you have to do is call right now, 516-620-3602, or go to give2wbai.org on your computer or smartphone and sign up at the tax-deductible monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever's easiest for you. And that's it. We'll take care of the rest. You can cancel at any time, and you don't even need to tell the person at the WBAI call center about the book or check any additional boxes online. Just sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and my staff will make sure that you get the book. But however you contribute, the important thing is that you do your part by stepping up and supporting this show and this legendary radio station, the only station on New York Radio that's 100% listener-sponsored. We don't take corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind, and we don't run ads or corporate marketing spots. We rely totally on the generosity of our listeners, listeners like Robert Dunlop of Gowanus. Thanks, Robert. We can't do this without listeners like you. So one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602, or go online to give to WBAI.org. But please make sure that contribution is in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And from all of us at the station to all of you, thank you so much. And uh, we return now to my guests, Leonard Casuto and Robert Weisbuck, their book, The New PhD, How to Build a Better Graduate Education by Johns Hopkins University Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. It sounds like my dogs want to get into this conversation. I thought it was my dog. (laughs) No, I don't know what happened, but whatever it is, I've really got them both excited. Now, um, (laughs) only one in 10 students will be able to get a job as a college professor. What do PhD students have to do to stand apart from the rest to get those coveted professorships? You know, I think that it's mainly a matter of uh, its talent and fortune. Uh, Probably the most important thing that can happen is that they get good advice, that they have uh, not only a dissertation advisor, but advisors all the way along the line who are able to uh, bring out their creativity and who honor their ability and dedication and work with them 
uh, so that they can reach their potential. But the fact is that, in a way, it's an unanswerable question that you posed. Uh, I had any number of wonderful students at the University of Michigan who, in a more robust kind of economic situation, would have no prof- uh, no uh, problem becoming highly effective uh, professors. And, of course, it's that, that that led me to this question about what are we doing with the Ph.D.? Um, if and, they can't and, find a teaching position. You know, that is to say about 50% of all uh, Ph.D. graduates uh, eventually find a teaching position of one kind or another. Many of them, however, uh, end up as adjuncts, which means that they mm-hmm. run around to two or three campuses trying to put their lives together and their income together in, in a way that, you know... Because you can they can't get tenure. Uh, you're not going to get tenure. You're not going to get job security. You often are not going to get any benefits, as a matter of fact. You're living a kind of life, a minimum wage life, after several years of advanced study. And, and so that, you know, and these are people who are tremendously capable. So what we're saying is, look, a, a closed economy is a bad economy. And if you are a Ph.D. graduate, you have a kind of all-purpose creativity. You have extraordinary dedication. You are able to bring major research into play and and bring major research to term. You are going to be valuable in literally every social sector. So the question doesn't become so much what can a Ph.D. do as what can a Ph.D. not do. Although Ph.D.s uh, have to be wary about calling themselves doctors, the president's wife has discovered. <laughs> well, I, yeah, so I there are trolls everywhere. <laughs> I remember telling a, a group of PhD graduates that uh, the time to use the word doctor is when you're trying to make a reservation at a at, at a popular restaurant. But uh, uh-huh. uh, you know, I, as as Len said earlier, the credential is terribly important. In fact, many people who go on to do other things in life rather than become professors say that the the credential itself uh, gets them heard seriously where they go but really it's it's it becomes a matter of not only educating faculty to the idea that their students should be encouraged to think more creatively about their job outcomes but also a matter of convincing uh, CEOs and especially HR people who can be very uh, narrow-minded that that uh, a Ph.D. is going to be uh, of real value to them. At a Woodrow Wilson found, I, I led the Woodrow Wilson Foundation for several years. And at one of our seminars on this very issue, a leading CEO, who at the time was the head of Geico, actually said, "You know, why would I, why would I rather hire an MBA than one of your Ph.D.s?" Uh, I. I I could take several years, and I wouldn't be able to teach that person uh, how to do research, how to think, how to teach others, and so on, whereas your people are able to do all of that. Why wouldn't I rather hire one of yours? And then he paused for a moment and gave his answer. He said, it's because your people never apply. (laughs) He did say uh, a Ph.D. comes with all of the abilities uh, to... Uh, on how to think, write, research, and most of all, teach fellow employees, even if she can already handle a specific task. Uh, He said, I can initiate her into that specific task in days and then watch out. But but are they really, do they take ed classes as well? Uh, Or or is it assumed that somebody with a PhD will just, is smart enough to figure things out? PhDs, uh, learn to teach along the way in in most disciplines they are teaching undergraduates and so and learning how to communicate your research is something that phds learn within the discipline but uh, one of the problems one of the the most vexing problems of phd education right now is attitudinal that uh, we uh, we graduate students have as bob has detailed a marvelous varied skill set but uh, we uh, we teach them that they are Lamborghinis, mm-hmm. highly specialized sports cars, when in fact they're all-terrain vehicles. And if you believe that you're a Lamborghini and you only belong on, a tr- on the racetrack, even if the racetrack is clogged with traffic, you'll never go off-road and, find- and have the adventures there that may make your life more fulfilling. 
But Leonard, public speaking and presenting is one of the most crucial skills for advancement in any career setting. Shouldn't that make PhDs great candidates for many different work environments because they're required to present a lot? Surely, as Bob, as Bob suggested, they've they've got they've got the skill set. PhDs are information experts. They know how to analyze, synthesize, research, gather information, and most of all, they know how to teach it. And so, PhDs should be going into uh, any workplace with full confidence, and employers should be recognizing all of those qualities in PhDs. Right now, we see that sometimes we don't see it nearly often enough. And if there were more openness to the diversity of prospects, that is, in fact, the reality right now, then the, the pressure that Ph.D. students feel in so many fields right now would be eased. I don't want well, to get what? into inside baseball too much, Leonard, but, but many, many universities and colleges, many universities don't even have a, uh, a career office for graduate students. A, a growing number do, and they've become much more active and robust, and that's one of the advances that we welcome. But, but in many cases, the, the kind of connections that it would require for students to get some experience beyond academia simply don't exist, and the connections are so easy to make. Every university has a career office. Every university mm -hmm has an alumni association. Alums love to hire people from their own university, even if they were not graduate students there. These are the kind of connections that need to be made because faculty members, frankly, don't know much about the job opportunities beyond the academy because they've lived in the academy for most of their lives. They need a, we need a village to change the situation. What are PhD students currently doing with their advanced degrees when they can't find teaching positions? You say that uh, they're not being presented with other options uh, by, by their schools. Well, let's consider the lab sciences as, as an example. In the lab sciences, the standard career path as it has evolved over the years that is supposed to lead to a faculty position is that you get your PhD and then you enter into a series of one and commonly more postdoctoral fellowships where you're doing much the same work as you were doing before uh, in uh, working in somebody, some faculty member's lab on what is called soft money, that is money that is funded by grants, usually from the outside. It's a, it's a shaky and uncertain existence, and uh, doctor, uh, holders of doctorates in the sciences go through this, this, this uh, brutal shoot for years in the hope of a faculty position that is, by the numbers, not going to be available to any but a small minority of them. So they, they, it's a version of the adjunct problem that Bob described a few minutes ago that's more common in the humanities and the social sciences. The sci in the sciences, this postdoctoral holding pattern is the equivalent and it empties uh, talented people of their hope, and it empties them, and, and, it, and it sucks up their labor. Inst instead of their looking outward for ways that they could apply themselves and join organizations that would be glad to have them. You write that, quote, most people now see college and graduate school as a personal investment in their own individual future, not a shared social benefit. So what's the impact of that? Well, the impact of that is a loss to society at large, and the impact of that may be something that, in fact, we're viewing in, in misinformation, the inability of uh, any uh, of, a, of a to be able to distinguish uh, truth from falsehood. And we want to see a, a and it, we don't think it for the Ph.D. to become more socially involved. Furthermore, the Ph.D. is all too white and still male in many mm. disciplines. And report after report, survey after survey, tells us that uh, first in family uh, students, students of color, uh, women, uh, have much greater than average desire to bring their learning back to their communities. And so, for instance, if you're writing a dissertation, and a dissertation typically is being expressed in highly technical language, 
you should be required, and this is happening at several universities now, to write a couple of pages on how you would describe the importance of your work to a general population. Rather than, and, and the fact is, of course, that, that all uh, graduate students and faculty are public intellectuals in the sense that every time they enter a classroom, they are experts teaching non-experts and have to practice a kind of lingua franca uh, in order to translate what they know uh, to, to learners who are not at the same level. So it's not such a great leap for uh, graduate students to be trained to be uh, citizen scholars. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guests are Leonard Casuto and Robert Weisbuck, authors of The New PhD, How to Build a Better Graduate Education from Johns Hopkins uh, University Press. You write that these are some of the things that administrators need to focus on to make change. Reduce the time it takes students to earn a degree, expand career opportunities after graduation, encourage public scholarship, create coherent curricula, and rethink the dissertation, attract a truly representative student cohort, and provide the resources, financial, cultural, and emotional that students need to successfully complete the program. Is anybody doing that? Well, let's simplify this. Let's say we can ask, what do our students need and what does society need? And then work backwards from there. That idea of reverse engineering from outcomes that are, that are student-based and public-facing, that doesn't happen nearly often enough because the history of graduate education in the United States is a history that is faculty-centered. There's an enormous schol- body of scholarship on how to teach undergraduates. The body, of, there's, the body of scholarship on how to teach graduate students is almost non-existent by comparison. The reason is that teaching, gra- teaching in graduate school is considered to be an offshoot of faculty research. It's all about the faculty. We're proposing that the whole thing be rejiggered. Let's, the, graduate school is school. Let's look at it from the point of view of students, first of all, and say, what do students need? If we ask what students need and what society most stands to benefit from, then we can start to redesign backwards and do a lot of the things that you just listed from our book. Now, you You mentioned... If we we mention particular programs, we're going to tick off others that think they should be mentioned, but but I think we can mention a few without meaning to exclude others. Uh, Duke University, the University of Virginia, Emory University... um, have been uh, uh, leaders in having an overall idea of change. Princeton has been very much involved in rethinking graduate education um, and uh, the University of Kentucky. So there is movement among, among institutions of different kinds in different parts of the country. And, but, you know, one of the things that we had to worry about in writing this book was, well, what if your university isn't all involved in a kind of overall effort of this sort? How can, how can your faculty in your program get this done, uh, even without a kind of overall initiative at your university? But it would be so much easier if provosts and presidents gave the graduate deans the capacity to encourage change. Now, you mentioned the lack of diversity in most of the programs. How do you attract a more diverse student body in a Ph.D. program? Well, to start with, you have to look at recruitment and retention together. That to recruit without retaining is to um, is uh, is ultimately to uh, to do nothing of uh, of lasting value. That um, if you are going to do the work to attract students from underrepresented groups to graduate programs, and it is a lot of work because the applicant pool is. Uh, is, is not as large as it should be, which is uh, a, one of the reasons this is a systemic problem that goes back to levels before graduate school. If you're going to do the work to attract a diverse applicant pool, then, you're, then you need to work on the culture of your program to make sure that when these people come, they're not simply treated as numbers or baubles, but rather that you have a program culture that is not only welcoming, but substantive in the ways that matter, including, for example, public-facing in, uh, initiatives. Because, as Bob suggested earlier, 
uh, people from underrepresented groups are statistically more likely to want to in- have their research engage with the places and the concerns of where they came from. We have uh, just a minute or two left. Uh, Robert, you talk about rethinking the dissertation. Why do you think that it needs rethinking and what would that accomplish? <laughs> and unfortunately, you've got to give me a very quick answer. Can do a lot of different things and call it a dissertation rather than just one thing. It, it in most cases now in in the humanities and social sciences, it's sort of a rehearsal book uh, it, based on the idea of a book. There should be many paths to the palace of wisdom, as Blake says. There should be many different ways of of a final project that's meaningful, depending on the interests of the student and the career objectives of the student. Loosen it up. Uh, let a thousand flowers blossom. Thank you so much, both of you, for being my guests today. Leonard Casuto, Robert Weisbuck, the book, The New PhD, How to Build a Better Graduate Education, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. It's been a real pleasure. And a pleasure for us. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison, who prepared today's interview. If if you're new to this program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on a show or if you just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, uh, I'd like to ask you one last time to support the station. If, if you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep it going during these very challenging times. So I hope you'll make a contribution, if you can afford it, by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to show your support at whatever level you're comfortable giving. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a sustaining member of BAI Buddy during today's show by making a monthly contribution of $10, $15, $20, whatever uh, is you're comfortable with uh, in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we would be delighted to send you a copy of the book that we've been discussing, The New PhD, How to Build a Better Graduate Education by today's guests, Leonard Casuto and Robert Weisbuck. It's our way of saying thank you for your generosity, but please make sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And remember that we rely 100% on our listeners. We don't take ads. We don't take foundation money or anything like that. We uh, really feel that it's the only way that we can remain a true free speech radio. And we're a radio station. We're the only one uh, on the New York dial that lives by these rules. But we can only do it if you give us that support. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And whether you become a BAI buddy or you make a, a, a single contribution, whatever it is, we really appreciate your support and, and thank you very much for it. And we hope that you can join us for tomorrow's show when filmmaker Frida Lee Mock, uh, notable activist Lily Ledbetter, and Jennifer Carol Foy, who is a former member of the Virginia House of Delegates, will discuss a new documentary uh, that, they, that they've made called Ruth Justice Ginsburg in her own words. It's a really fascinating film, uh, and I'm sure you're going to want to hear it, so tune in tomorrow. See you then.